Welcome to ID the Future, a podcast about intelligent design and evolution. Welcome to ID the Future. Today we have joining us Gunter Beckley, a German paleoentomologist who specializes in the fossil history and systematics of insects, especially dragonflies, the most diverse group of animals. He served as a curator for amber and fossil insects in the Department of Paleontology at the State Museum of Natural History in Stuttgart, Germany. And he is a senior fellow with Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. Dr. Beckley joins us on ID the Future today to share about living fossils and stasis in the fossil record. Welcome to the show. Hi, Zara. Great to be on this podcast again. So, Dr. Beckley, what are living fossils? Well, living fossils is a technical term for living organisms that look more or less hardly changed compared to fossils that are many millions of years old. Or uh, alternatively, living fossils are organisms that look very much like assumed ancestors are supposed to should have looked like. So the term living fossil goes way back to Charles Darwin himself, who said in his book, Origin of Species, that some recent organisms like the brachypod lingular or the platypus that still lays eggs like a reptile or the lungfish that breathes with lungs like a land vertebrate, that they, um, that's quote, may almost be called living fossils. So that's what the technical term means and where it comes from. So they've somehow resisted the transforming power of natural selection. Right. Are such living fossils a rare phenomenon? No, no, uh, they're not rare at all. Uh, indeed, you can find numerous examples in almost all major groups of organisms. But uh, one has to be careful not to just look at superficial resemblances of recent and fossil animals as was, for example, done in a pompous but truly uh, ridiculous book called Atlas of Creation, made by a Turkish creationist called Adnan Oktar, where the alleged proofs of no evolutionary change often do not even feature organisms that belong to the same family. But if properly done, then uh, there are indeed many real examples for living fossils uh, suggested by mainstream scientists. Can you name some of these examples? Sure. Among the more well-known examples would be stromatolites, velvet worms, the nautilus, of course, among fish-like animals, lampreys, ghost sharks, sturgeons, the silicant, then you have the tuatara lizard, pelicans, and also plants like the ginkgo tree or the bulimi pine, and the list could go on and on. But maybe I, I should highlight a, a very striking example and uh, that is horseshoe crabs. And horseshoe crabs, like the recent species Limulus polyphemus, they look identical to 148 million years old uh, species Limulus darwini from the Upper Jurassic of Poland, and still identical to the 244 million year old Limulitella terriensis of the Mid Triassic of Tunisia. And still very similar to the 445 billion year old Lunataspis aurora from the upper Ordovician of Canada. And that is almost a half billion years without significant morphological change. Um, and you really have to let this number sink in. Yeah, I've looked at these pictures of the fossil horseshoe crabs. It's really amazing. They really are nearly identical. Right. Is it true that evolutionists try to abolish this term living fossil and deny the phenomena? 
Now, most Darwinian scientists rather claim that uh, living fossils fit well into the Darwinian framework, or they would say that they do not really show stasis because of subtle changes. Uh, but indeed, recently there has been a massive attack being launched against the validity of the, the concept of living fossils, because living fossils, of course, are quite inconvenient facts for evolutionists. So there, there have been publications like by Larry Moran, uh, 2012, The Myth of Living Fossils, or Meloro and Jones, a title which ends on Dispute the Persistent Living Fossil Label, or Casiana and Laurenti, 2013, Why Silicons Are Not Living Fossils, or Mathers et al., 2013, uh, a title and Challenge the Concept of Living Fossils, and there's Young, 2013, The of Living Fossils, Grand Collar, 2014, Relic Species, a Relic Concept, question mark, and finally, Carmel, 2016, let's make living fossils extinct, etc., etc. But indeed, this is all nothing but smoke and, and mirrors. So if you look at the actual papers, for example, in 2011, uh, there were worldwide headlines like endangered plants are not living fossils after all. Um, these headlines address the genomic study on cycads, these palm-like uh, trees, uh, paper by Nagalingam et al., uh, published in Science in 2011. But if you look at the actual study, it only suggested that cycads went through a bottleneck about uh, 12 million years ago, but the authors did not dispute that the body plan is uh, 280 million years old and, and more or less unchanged. And another example is the Tuatara lizard from uh, New Zealand. It stated that living fossil came under fire, and it was claimed that there is evidence for rapid genetic evolution by a paper of Hay et al. Uh, 2008. And there were also challenges based on paleontological evidence by Meloro and Jones, 2012. But then came a new study on the Rinkocephalian fossil relatives of the Tuatara lizard by Herrera Flores et al. 2017. And they justify Darwin's living fossil theory and prove that the Tuatara is indeed very conservative, very much like its relatives from over 200 million years ago. And the authors also showed that this earlier result of alleged rapid genetic evolution does in any case not correlate with any kind of phenotypic change. And they even provided a precise and testable new definition for living fossils based on a slow rate of lineage evolution and uh, a, a morphology close to what they call centroid of the clade morphospace. And as it happens, just a few days ago, another new study was published by Bennett et al. 2018 titled Quantifying the Living Fossil Concept. And they introduced a new metric, uh, which they called Evolutionary Performance Index, and they used it for over 24,000 groups, confirmed most of the well-known examples of living fossils, as well as revealing some overlooked ones. So the living fossil concept is far from dead. It's, it's well alive and thriving in science. What, what kinds of explanations have been suggested for such evolutionary stasis? Now, the usual explanation would be natural selection, and natural selection is proposed to be transformative when environmental conditions change, but stabilizing when environmental conditions stay the same, or when organisms have been optimized for persisting niches with low competition. And so evolutionists say these living fossils do evolve, but they evolve towards keeping their particular form, which is optimized. 
And some evolutionists suggest several other possible explanations uh, for evolutionary stasis, like reduced frequency or speciation, but they all boil down to stabilizing selection and maximize uh, fitness. So natural selection is basically seen like a magic wand that is uh, of unlimited creative power unless it, it's not and it does the opposite and prohibits change. And that sounds uh, very much like an old weather proverb as the corporal crows from its favorite spot. The weather may change or again, it may not. Uh, to me, this does not really sound like a profound scientific insight. The crucial problem is constant conditions are simply implausible. Uh, for example, in the case of the horseshoe crabs, which survived 450 million years through all five cataclysmic mass extinction events which uh, each exterminated between 50 and, and 96% of, of marine biodiversity. And they also went through several major explosions like the Devonian Necton Revolution, which fundamentally changed marine ecosystems. So it's not true that the environmental conditions stayed the same. They changed and they didn't change these organisms. So this doesn't explain why these organisms could survive for this time without changing and other organisms which were much more abundant, much more diverse, like trilobites, uh, went extinct. So you cannot say the same forces under the same conditions either uh, cause change or they do not. It doesn't make really sense. Okay, but why can't one just say that changing conditions make a species' survival unpredictable? Well, that's what many evolutionists indeed would say, that evolution is, is kind of contingent process and thus unpredictable. So basically, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And trilobites had bad luck, and horseshoe crabs were the lucky winners. And uh, Stephen J. Gould famously, famously said uh, in his book, Wonderful Life, that if we could somehow rewind the tape of evolution, then everything would turn out to be different in a new run. But uh, actually, contingency is not a plausible explanation. And the reason is a phenomenon that turned out to be ubiquitous in, in the whole of the uh, history of life, and that is convergence, so the appearance of the same characters in totally unrelated groups. Simon Conway Morris has written two books on this phenomenon and pointed out that convergence suggests that evolution is not a contingent process, but very much constrained to a limited set of solutions that are found over and over again in unrelated groups. And therefore, uh, this alleged contingency of the evolutionary process does not explain why under the same conditions some groups change and others do not, why some survive and adapt and, and others go extinct. So if we're going to examine this scientifically, we need some sort of causal explanation. An appeal to chance just won't do. Right, exactly. Are there other phenomena of evolutionary stasis, for example, concerning alleged species transitions? Yeah, uh, there are several other phenomena, and they are also posing problems for Darwinism. So basically, Darwinian theory of evolution predicts a gradual pattern of, of fine-grained species-to-species transition. Uh, even Richard Dawkins made this very clear in his book, Greatest Show on Earth, uh, where he said, and that's quote, evolution not only is a gradual process, as a matter of fact, it has to be gradual if it has to do any if it is to do any explanatory work. And if you look at the fossil record, then you can, of course, check if this is actually true, if you can find these gradual species-to-species transitions in nature. 
And uh, Charles Darwin was quite aware that, that it does not, and uh, that the fossil record does not uh, support this prediction. And he, he himself said that this is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. But he still hoped that it's only based on a fragmentary uh, knowledge and a poorly known fossil record and hoped that over time new discoveries could, could maybe solve this problem. Uh, however, uh, this did not happen and an appeal to undersampling of the fossil record is, is not really longer tenable for most groups of organisms. Therefore, some paleontologists like Eldridge and Gould recognize that stasis is really there in the data of the fossil record. And they pro proposed a new model, the famous punctuated equilibria, which said, well, change is only happening in very short times, very quickly, and then we're long periods of morphological stasis. But that this is just a totally ad hoc explanation is shown by the editorial introduction to their famous article in which they introduced this concept of, of punctuated equilibria, where the editor said this idea that Theory dictates what one sees cannot be stated too strongly. So it's the expectation they, they just have to come up with a theory that makes the data fit uh, their preconceived notion instead of trying to find the best explanation for the data. So today, what are some ways that scientists try to show gradualism in the fossil record? Now, of course, they try. They, they desperately try to find evidence for Darwinian uh, gradualism in the fossil record, even though not really with much success. Uh, there's a famous paleontologist called Philip Gingrich, who admitted in a paper in 1983 uh, that the little fossil evidence that has been used to support uh, this hypothesis could either be an artifact and in any case does not provide a, a confirmation of gradualism, and there are only very few documented cases where you could make a case for, for phyletic gradualism. Most of them come from fossil marine microplankton and deep sea sediments, especially foraminiferan protists. And there are several problems with these data. One is that it was discovered that uh, a phenomenon called cryptic diversity leads to, to inter incorrect interpretations of the data patterns. But more importantly, some of the most celebrated examples of, of gradualism, like uh, the example of uh, Globorotalia plesiotumida versus Globorotalia tumida, that are two species of planktonic foraminifera, foraminifera uh, were refuted in a paper by Harlan Norris in 2009. Um, this paper had a very revealing title, Evidence for Abrupt Speciation in a Classic Case of Gradual Evolution. This was published in PNAS. And it shows these kind of evidences turned out not to be correct. Another example are the famous uh, freshwater snails of the genus Guraulus. Uh, they are from uh, Miocene lake sediments uh, from a locality in Germany, the Steinheim Basin. <laughs> And in uh, 1866, the German paleontologist Hans Hilgendorf used these snails to produce the first phylogenetic tree based on, on fossils. And it was claimed it's the first fossil confirmation of Darwin's theory. But there were very early critiques of his uh, claims, for example, by Gottschick in 1920. And they said that the Steinheim snails might rather represent eco-phenotypes just ecological morphs uh, rather than distinct species. And this was recently confirmed by a study of living Uralus snails from the Tibetan Plateau, a study by Kluing et al. in 2015. 
and this sheds considerable doubt on the phyletic interpretation of this dynamic snail. And finally, I think it's important to mention a seminal study by Hunt, uh, 2010, called Evolution in Fossil Images. And they, uh, or it's a single author, Hunt, uh, he evaluated uh, the fossil evidence for species-level transformations in the light of 150 years of paleontological research since the time of Darwin. And he emphasized that in most cases, the actually observed changes in the fossil record are not directional. And Han concludes that uh, this meandering and fluctuating trajectories that, quote, captured in the fossil record would not have been predicted without the benefit of an empirical fossil record. And that is, of course, just obfuscated language, which can be translated uh, into the fossil record does not confirm Darwinian gradualism. So that's what's actually going on. They try to find evidence but in uh, most or nearly all examples, it turns out to be refuted later on. Hmm. It seems as if there's an obsession with trying to defend gradualism, despite all the contrary evidence. Right, right. They, of course, have the right to find evidence, but unfortunately for them, it happens to turn out against the Darwinian expectations in all cases. So, to conclude, why is evolutionary stasis a problem for Darwinian evolution? Now, uh, first, indeed, it is a problem and that, uh, that was always insisted upon by critics of Darwin that living fossils and morphological stasis generally pose a problem for the theory of evolution because they contradict the predictions, their kind of reputations, empirical reputations. And even mainstream evolutionary biologists emphasize that static species that resist this kind of general trend towards increasing complexity and, and diversity, that they at least require a special explanation. And uh, you could say, in a way, living fossils represent the opposite of the waiting time problem, which uh, about which we talked uh, at another occasion. And the waiting time problem uh, shows that in some cases, the geological time was much too short to allow for the required genetic changes. And living fossils show that even vast periods of geological time did not produce any significant changes in some groups of organisms. So this lack of evidence for, for evolutionary change in living fossils or other evidences for evolutionary stasis, they are stubborn facts that cannot be easily dismissed. And they are well consistent with other data, especially presented by ID proponents that suggest that species are unchanging entities and that the neo-Darwinian process is not able to generate significant biological novelty. Um, on the other hand, intelligent design has no problem to explain these facts because uh, it proposes highly discontinuous history of life with distinct events uh, of infusion of new information resulting in biological novelty and new design kinds, which then exist without significant change. So uh, the pattern of the fossil record rather uh, supports intelligent design than uh, Darwinian evolution. So although randomness and determinism fail as explanations, intelligent design does present a plausible theory. Right, exactly. Thank you so much for joining us on ID the Future today, Dr. Beckley. Thank you for having me. This has been your host, Sarah Chaffee. Thank you for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute. For more information, visit intelligentdesign.org 
and idthefuture.com.